My name is Philip Palumbo, and I'm CEO and founder of Palumbo Wealth Management. Welcome to my show, The Palumbo Show, where we will be interviewing some of the most successful business owners and C-suite executives about their journey to success. After 20 years of working for some of the largest Wall Street banks and having the courage to go off my own, I now completely get it. It changes your inner soul because your name is on the door and it gives you a certain level of energy that is unexplainable. I am looking forward to this journey and learning from these self-made business people, their struggles and their successes, and how we can use that to optimize to our fullest potential, how we serve our clients and how we live our lives. Hello, everybody. My name is Philip Palumbo, and I'm the host of the Palumbo Podcast, where we interview successful business people, entrepreneurs, to learn about how they got to the top. Today, we're fortunate enough to have Josh Cadillac with us. Josh is a real estate professional who started his practice as a young kid and has built up an incredible business today. So we're looking forward to learning about where you are today, Josh, and how you did what you did. So thank you for joining us. Philip, thanks for having me, bud. I appreciate it. All right. Awesome. So, Josh, I'd love to talk about entrepreneurism, right? Which is an incredible, uh, incredible way to be in life in, in terms of starting a business, et cetera. So tell me about how you ended up becoming an entrepreneur versus working for somebody. Well, my dad always owned businesses um, growing up and, you know, just being around that mindset of, you know, find a better way, figure out how to, how to get it done. You know, just because people, because people say they can't do it. Um, and so I was exposed at an early age. My, my father actually was a guy that had patents to his names for different things that he had come up with, like very mechanical solutions to problems that, you know, nobody thought could be solved. In fact, uh, one of his businesses, the, the executives for General Motors, Ford and Chrysler actually wound up showing up one day, the, the uh, industrial engineers standing outside of his plant. And he, they asked him, how many square feet you got here? He told them and he said, uh, you know, how much, how many units are you pushing out of here? He told them, I said, it's impossible. He said, you stand here and you watch from now till the end of time, I'm going to keep pumping units out the door and you tell me I'm stockpiling inside, right? Um, he was that guy. And so um, very no-nonsense Brooklyn guy. Um, you know, you, you'd never know the guy was as smart as he is, a very, you know, very down-to-earth kind of guy. But, you know, at the same time, he was a guy that I never asked him what a word meant and he didn't know. You know, he always had his head on his shoulders and he was always, he was always interested in how it worked, like how the world worked. And so... Um, that appetite he built into me and, and, you know, like, how does it work and figure out what people need and how we can do it better. You know, he used to tell me an idea is like a lemon. You squeeze it as hard as you can. Right. And then you think there's no more juice in it. Then you turn it 90 degrees and squeeze again and you get a little bit more out. Then you stick a fork up in there. Like there's always more to be gotten out of things. Don't ever just take it for granted that it's done. And so that kind of gives you a hunger and a, and a a thirst for, for figuring out how to make it better and how to find those things to take and do things that need to be done because just somebody hasn't figured out how to do it yet. Yeah, I love that. That's that's really a good analogy, a good way to think of it. You know, it's I've, I've always taken the approach in life that you could always walk around thinking you know it all, but the reality is, is you know so little. And there's, Gosh, yes. And, there, and, there's, and there's so much to learn, which is great. I mean, that's a great thing about life. That's a great thing about living. You're always learning. You're always getting better. And, and that's, and your dad knew that from the beginning, you know, in, in any of our careers, whether it's your career or my career, you know, always have to be willing to get better and improve what you do and learn more because there's always more to learn, especially in my field. And I'm sure the same as yours uh, in the financial markets and planning. Um, it's not just stocks and bonds. It's really, it's planning as well. You know, it's a tax side of things and everything that's different and changes that may go on there. So I love that. It's a great analogy. So 
So, so your your dad, so he was an entrepreneur. He he was. He had uh, he had one of the uh, he was one of the largest landowners in Brooklyn for a lot of years. Uh, had a huge industrial operation up there, and um, came down to Florida, bought a bunch of real estate uh, down here. I mean, he was he was a guy that could see what needed to happen. Um, just never, uh, the timing never was quite perfect where he, you know, he was that billionaire guy, but he was darn close yeah. uh, a bunch of times. And so, um, he left us, he, he left me pretty well situated and, and with that, that de- decent appetite, uh, for, for business and how business work. I mean, I, I never really wanted to work for somebody else. Um, you know, I, 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 I even when I work for, with somebody else, it was always like trying to figure out how to make their business better. You know, I, I can't help it. It's just kind of how it is. And so, um, when 2007 and eight came along, I was very long in real estate, which, you know, I was, I was in a good position. I wasn't over leveraged. I was in a, you know, but I also had decided in a moment of sheer genius to go into the restaurant business and open a couple of restaurants, one in 2006 and one in 2007. And uh, in addition to the real estate market tanking, people's desire to eat good Italian food also took a nosedive, at least out at restaurants. Right. And so, um, those positions, the, the money that I used, the leverage that I had taken to get into those restaurants, um, all of it basically was like a house of cards came down on me and I had to start from scratch. And so 2008, I was looking for a job. Basically, my businesses were, were, were gone. And so uh, I had a, I knew real estate because I had managed the real estate in New York with my father and I had seen how it was done. And so I got in just, just trying to help people do it. And, and I mean, if you were talking about pain and suffering, I went into a bid into a market. Miami-Dade County is the most populous county in Southeast Florida. We were going five miles out to find three closed comps of a three-bedroom, two-bath home. In other words, we had to go five miles out from the epicenter of where this home was to try to find three comps. Right now in this market, we go an eighth of a mile out. We have 20, wow. right? There's just, there was nothing selling. And so we, I came in and I had to be the guy that had to learn how to do short sales because all the players that were in the field, nobody wanted to do. It was hard. It was work. We don't want to do that. We just want easy sales. And so that's, that's not my, my taste. You know, what's got to get done? How do we figure out how to get it done and get it systematized? So by 2010, I was carrying 70 or 80 active listings at one time, um, which meant I was getting a lot of really dumb phone calls from agents that don't know how to read. Um, but it is what it is. It's the nature of the business. I, I learned how to take and find a niche in that space. And I, in the process, I, I did what, you know, you always have to do when you go into something new, uh, educate yourself. I had known real estate as an investor, but I had never known real estate on the other side of the equation. You know, what are the things back, the back office things that happen outside of the analysis that I do and, and figuring out how to, how, what a good asset is. Right. And so I had to learn that piece. And so in the first Two years, I took uh, just about every major real estate certification designation there is, including CCIM, which is one of the hardest ones to get. And and from all that, I I learned how to do the business and do it well. And I also learned that the education side of real estate is actually very lacking. And that's what got me into the business that I'm, I'm, I'm doing today, which is educating agents. I want to go back to when you went from probably a good state of mind prior to the collapse in a week, right? To the point where you decide to buy a restaurant. So you had some good cash flow going that you were able to do that. And then the crash happened, right? For everybody. And then for you personally, it took you out in a way. So tell me from a mental standpoint, for people listening, right? That do try to start a business and fail, which we've heard this story time and time again. How do you feel at that low? 
you feel embarrassed. You feel like you let your people down. The last thing my father said to me before he passed away was you take care of your mother, your brother, and your sister. And so um, my father was not a guy to hand off a charge like that lightly. And I appreciated that I had earned his respect enough to that point where he was willing to hand that off. And I feel like I genuinely had dropped the ball. I had let the old man down. I had, uh, I had really, uh, you know, he used to say to me all the time from the people to the people in three generations. I was that, that, that younger generation that came in and spoiled the work that the grandfather and the father built. That's kind of how I felt. There's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame associated with it, but you know, that's not a place that you can live. You're not, you're not effective. The reality of it is we're our chief piece of production equipment, right? And so just like an engine or anything else, you got to take and keep it well-tuned. You can't put bad gas in there or you're not going to get the performance you need. And the reality of it is I'm stuck with me. So I got to make the best I can of what I got. And so I had to listen to my favorite elder statesman, Mr. Rocky Balboa, who said life isn't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving forward. And that's what I did. Um, I really, I, I didn't really, I didn't think about it much. I just knew I had to keep going. I, it's, it, it wasn't something I could, I could live in that, that, that uh, frustration. Wow. That's great. So that's, that's important, right? So it's that's something maybe you indulged in it for a short while, but more is more about, okay, it's over. Like let's, let's move forward. That was the mindset. Yes. Yeah. This is the hand I'm dealt. What, what are you going to do? Yeah. Nothing you can do. So what was the next step that you took to start to rebuild your blocks? Uh, well, I started making money in real estate as quickly as I can. And I, I did the one thing that they don't tell you ever to do in America, which is to underconsume. Uh, I made sure to live below my means so that I was able to take and, uh, and allocate money to invest. And as soon as I got the money together to get my first property, I partnered with a couple of people to buy, to buy a, an income property, uh, which actually wound up being a little bit of a dog, truth be told. Um, well, actually, I take a step back. There was one other property that I did buy before that, I bought a fourplex before that, that has been just an absolute a beast. It's just, it, it's just performed and performed. Look, passive income are like the two most beautiful words in the English language. I took and worked for that money and now the checks, they come to me. It's the greatest thing in the whole wide world. Uh, but I kept trying to take and, and, uh, and acquire assets as, as quickly as I could. I knew the pricing that we were getting coming out of the, the housing crisis was just unsustainably low. It was very much a market reaction to oversupply. And so I knew that there was going to be a, a bounce back and that we were going to regret every single asset that we couldn't pick up along the way. So, you know, we kept cobbling together money and I'm, you know, buying three bedroom, two bath homes for 60, 70, 80,000 bucks. Well, those are $350,000 homes right now. Right. And so I knew the valuation was off. And I mean, God help us with the inflation that we're seeing right now. You can buy it. You could have bought anything last year and you look like a, a freaking genius. Um, and so uh, we, we basically, we just stayed on that. That My first step was really to take and try to get to a place where I was earning enough income to, to survive. And then to take and obviously to also trim the fat would be the other answer to the question. You know, I went from the, the Chevy Corvette to the Chevy Cruze which as a car guy is basically equivalent to having your soul crushed by a, a you know, a steamroller. Um, I, I made those tough decisions. I drove that cruise a lot longer than I had to. I drove it for six years, even though a year or two in, I could have gone back. Um, but I, I recognize that there's a, the idea of underconsumption is so foreign to most Americans. It, it's never taught. It's never talked about. It's always, you know, live within your means. Well, if you live within your means, you're always going to be broke. 
because you're always spending everything you make, you know? And so um, those ideas actually was one of the first projects I worked on, which is the book behind me, The Roadmap to the American Dream, which is a book that I wrote about that the investor class is really the only class of people that's really getting ahead. They're the ones that are really doing well because this system rewards making your hard work available in the form of liquidity to other investments, to other ideas, to bring them to market. That's what's most rewarded. And so that's, that, that was it. It's true. It's true. I mean, that's why, that's why, you know, as business owners, we're able to get deductions because we're hiring employees. We're putting people to work, which that's what the government wants, you know, and for that, you know, we get rewarded. You were making investments into real estate where people can live, you know, their, their lifestyle and you do the right thing as a, as a landlord, you get benefits for that, you know? So that's, that's what the, that's the way, that's the way the system works. That's why I tell people all the time, which I didn't, I just started my own practice two years and three months ago in the wealth. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've always said, if you want to get ahead in this world, you got to have your own business. Always. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is one of, you know, like on the continuum of messiness, which is something I teach on, you know, like on the simple end of investment, I suppose you could kind of call it investment. Only it's really not like a savings account, you know, where you're making one tenth of one, one millionth of 1% on your money. Right. But it's clean. It's super duper clean. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have owning your own business, which is the messiest thing I can think of in the universe, because every problem anywhere associated with that business is your problem. Right. Everything is your problem. And it's the most risky and most individual intensive type of investment that's out there. Um, but it's also the most rewarding when you make it win, because the reality of it is you went through that fire. Yeah, man, it's good stuff. So congrats, man. That's awesome. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was, it was one of the, the best thing I've ever done in my life, without a doubt, by, by far. Besides meeting my wife and having my three children, my three boys, you know, this by far is definitely my third, I'd say my fourth child. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's exciting. It really is. I'm just getting going. What did you learn from your experience that, um, that happened in 08? Would you, what's the number one thing that you took away from that? Um, obviously, preserving liquidity as, as a real estate investor, right? Liquidity is always one of the biggest risk factors that exists. And I had always been pretty decent at keeping liquidity under control, staying at a 65% loan to value ratio on my properties kind of thing, always leaving myself in a place uh, where if I, I genuinely needed liquid cash, I could probably get it somehow. Um, but I, I think there's, there's the big takeaway was there's really no preparing for a black swan event. I mean, you can, you can try your best. Um, you can't listen to the hype. You can't listen to the noise. There are certain fundamentals that drive markets. And when the median home price to median income ratio got as far out of skew as it was in 2006 and seven, you know, you knew the fundamentals of that real estate market were super overextended. And even the people that were disciplined investors got involved because it went on so long. They're like, maybe this is a fundamental shift in how real estate is done. And so it made me made it made me more cautious of people thinking a fundamental shift in things have actually occurred. Um, I, I hear that and I say to myself, eh, 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 hang on. Um, there's there's there there needs to be a good reason for that. And so when you look at what the reason why why home prices went up the way that they did in six and seven, it wasn't there there wasn't a good economic underlier for it. There wasn't inflation to back it up. There wasn't wage growth to back it up. It was this one outlier in the economy that was spiking for no apparent reason other than artificial demand created by a change in lending practices. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the three worst words we could all say to ourselves is this, 
time is different, which is forward. Yeah. This time is different, right? Absolutely. Or worst words you could you could ever say to yourself because it's 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 you know history is, doesn't repeat itself, but oftentimes it, it rhymes. And like you said, I mean, it was just such a situation where what I want to talk about today in a moment, but you know, it's uh, it's interesting when I hear you say that. So in terms of um, in terms of Robert Kiyosaki, have you, have you read his book Rich Dad Poor Dad? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's very much in keeping that, that that's very much an idea that that people need. My position is this, uh, I, I try to make my book in kind of a similar vein as his, except not spe- specifically looking at real estate and kind of looking at the idea of differential cash flow, of looking at, you know, cash flows over time, and, and compounding appreciation, and trying to simplify that. Uh, for the average man, because when, even when you say differential cash flow, like three quarters of the population's eyes glaze over immediately. Um, it sounds scary enough, but the reality of it is with a differential cash flow, I can tell whether or not that college education is better than buying that fourplex on the corner. Um, I can take and compare very unlike things with this. It, it shows me as a tool, the best allocation of capital, as long as my assumptions are, are, are reasonably based. And so trying to make that very approachable version of that information, trying to make that available to the common man at, at a sixth or seventh grade level. That's really what, what my passion was. And it's largely fueled by the rich dad, poor dad type books of the world that, that are, we're definitely looking to say, Hey, cut it out with the conspicuous consumption. You know, consumption is what, what people that want to be broke do. If you want to be wealthy, you learn to take and live below your means and allocate as much money as you can to invest. Great. Now that we're going to invest, how the hell do we pick the right investment? Because that's the next step. Right, Everybody's right. paralyzed. Like they get it. They know they need to, but they don't know how to take that next step, how to do the analysis. And, and you know, Philip, and I know, like I would never proceed to tell you how to do your thing because I know in order to do what you do, you have to immerse yourself. You have, really have to know what the hell's going on. And it's the same thing in my market. There's a lot of people that think they know a whole hell of a lot of stuff. They come down here and they get their lunch eaten, right? And so I don't like to get my lunch eaten. And so it's a matter of figuring out how to, how to take and, and spool up my knowledge, my ability to perform in that market, to understand that market as quickly as I can in, in a way that makes sense to know, to, to basically have that conversation with folks that like a friend would, hey, look, if you're thinking about doing this thing, you got to watch out for this, watch out for this and watch out for that. Those are the three biggest things you got to be keep your eye on. So make sure you're looking at this, this and this. If you, if you pay attention to that, you're well suited at least to, to get 90% of the problems out of the way. And, and that's kind of the place that I think people need is to try to deal with that fear aspect. So if, if you have, let's take a person that has $25,000 in the bank, mm-hmm. can they get involved as a real estate investor? It's tough in my market because the price point in my market is as high as it is. I think that they have a unique opportunity in this type of market that we're in right now because of the upward pricing pressure that's going on with rents has been so strong. And especially in my market, we're having a lot of immigration, a domestic immigration, people actually coming, moving from you know, parts of the United States to my part of the United States, uh, which is Southeast Florida, actually Florida in general, Florida's market's up 25% across, across the board from last year to this year. And so our rents in Miami in particular, up 58% from last year to this year. So what that does for a market, and it's just like any market, right? It's cre- You have this upward price trend now in the in the rental market. Well, the people that could afford to live there now can't because these folks from, you know, you come from California, look at the rents or come from New York and look at the rents in Florida. You're like, geez, are they out of their mind? This is, this is on sale. This is cheap. This is great. Right. right. And so those folks are paying it and they're happy to pay, but the folks that were living there now, they can't. 
So they now look at the next rung down on the ladder and they want to try to find the nicest thing they can in that next rung down and so on and so forth, working its way, continuing down in that, that tree of, you know, the food chain, if you will. Well, those folks in the bottom of the food chain, they don't have a place left to go. So what do they do? Well, they actually change location. They move further outside the major metropolitan area. So with your 25,000 bucks, you can probably do quite well going outside of a major metropolitan area to the, to the rural surrounding areas and picking up, picking up real estate that, you know, a hundred thousand dollar home, a 75% LTV uh, loan, a 60,000, $80,000, you know, small home would be probably a tremendous performer over the next couple of years while we take and, and cycle out this inflation that we're looking at. I mean, I know that there's a lot of talk now about that, those numbers flattening out. Yeah, but if it flattens out at eight and a half, that's still not a good thing. I mean, the 1970s, we averaged 9% inflation from 1970 to the, mid, to the early 1980s, right? Real estate appreciated on an average of 9% during that entire period of time. If you have income property, guess what your rents were doing? Because don't forget those real estate prices had the adverse go up because because income income they're able to reset the income, and that's why real estate is good in, good investment during real estate times. Sure, and the other piece of that equation is this: those real estate prices didn't go up as fast toward the end of that inflationary cycle because they had the downward pressure of high interest rates. Right. So those cash flows that they were generating, even those cash flows were going up the property wasn't appreciated as much. So that the, the tends to be, at least in my research, and Paul, Philip, I'm sure you could correct me if I'm wrong. The real estate appreciations tends to front load in an inflationary cycle. Like the real estate prices go up and then there's this downward pressure, this pressure that's applied downward by interest rates going up that make those cash flows now not look so attractive right. as the interest rates go up and up and up. But the thing is, there's no interest rate pressure on rents. Rents aren't affected by interest rates. So those rents are going up actually slightly disproportionately to other, other inflation. Right. Um, and so it's, it's a double dip. And it's the reason why I've seen so much capital reallocated uh, recently. I mean, so many people that are investors have gotten into this, the, the space uh, of real estate. They've just gobbled up even just regular residential product. People that you would think would be like institutional type 5,000 unit building type buyers. They're buying single family homes as quick as they can get them. So I want to stay with this idea of concept of, you know, $25,000 property for hundred thousand going outside these areas that you just talked about. So how do I go from buying that first property to becoming a multi real estate investor? I'm going to need additional capital to be able to do so. So do people typically get the additional capital from a job that they're, they're in and they're saving money or what, what's another way they can buy the second property and third well, property and so forth. The, 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 the simple answer to the question is obviously whatever they were doing to buy the first property took and put capital aside. If they maintain that, that property that they purchased should be throwing off additional capital as well, which should take and, and expedite that process. The other piece of the equation, and one of the ways that we were able to allocate to, to acquire you know, uh, a capital was through the appreciation of the property that we actually had. After a two-year hold, we were able to refinance and pull another $40,000 out of one that we right. just bought. Right. Okay. So just so I understand, right? So Two ways that you can build a multi-property portfolio. One is from a job that you're in, whether you own a business and you're generating cash flow, use that to purchase another property. Two or three years later, real estate values increase. You refinance and cash out, take 40, 50, 100,000 or a million or 5 million, 100 million, right? Whatever. Continue to buy more properties. That's the strategy, correct? That's the strategy. In, in a nutshell, it's to take and get a property, 
get that property generating income, take the income from that property and use that, allocate that with whatever money you could put aside from your day job to take and increase those that that nest egg to where you can buy in two years or buy in the next one. And then you have that income from that next property now kicking into that pool as well. So now it's not two years to buy the next one, it's a year and a half. And then you got four properties, you know, and you continue to take and grow that cash flow so that you're building a beast. It eventually it reaches critical mass and you're able to take. And I mean, I know every time that we get a refi opportunity, well, previous to <laughs> rates increasing, every time we've got an opportunity to refi, we're pulling out five, six, seven hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand dollars in a pool of eight or nine assets, and we're actually lowering our loan to value ratio. Um, it's a beautiful thing. It is great. So, so before rate before rate increases like we're seeing, cap rates on average. For like three, four, especially in the New York area here. Yeah, in New York, in New York, Los Angeles, California, places like that. Our cap rates down here are running around seven, are they uh, six and a half. Oh, they were absolutely seven. I could even find you an eight. Um, right now, I'd be lucky to find you five. That's that's about where we well, see. This is the thing. This is the thing, Philip. When I get somebody like you from up there that comes down here, you're like, "Are you guys crazy? This is like, great." Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would love. I would take that that bid any day of the week. I mean, I love absolutely it. seven eights. So now, now, now that you're at where we are, <laughs> four, five, five, where you are, is it still worth it to purchase a real estate property with a five cap? Sure, it is. And, and, and this you can is explain to my audience when we say five cap, six cap. What explain to what we what we mean by that? All right, so a cap rate is just simply a comparison of the income the property generates versus the purchase price. In other words, how much do I have to spend for that cash flow? Right. So the cash flow we're talking about is that that's net of expenses. That's net operating income. So when I teach analysis of real estate, the holy grail, I tell people to actually circle this and then like like little Shekinah glory light coming off of it because the most important number we need, which is the net operating income. How much money have I got left in my bank account after I paid all the bills? Because real estate's a little bit messy, right? right. It's not like, you know, a, 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 um, a mutual fund where you put your money in and here's what you got. You got to take and you, you get money in, you got to send money out, like what's left over. We got to get that what's left over. So it's comparing and understand this when you're when you're buying real estate, you're exchanging money today for a series of, of future cash flows right. and a future sale price, right? And so it's measuring how much do I have to spend for this cash flow? And the market's going to have a value for that cash flow. And the way that we measure that typically is a comparison of the two. What is the ratio of dollars I spend to dollars I get in an income? And we do that usually when we talk about a, a cap rate, we're talking about what percentage it is. So when I say an eight cap, that would mean a $100,000 property is generating $8,000 a year in net income. If that if the market now decides that property, that income is more valuable because real estate's better to be in, the price of that property will go up. And so right now, that, that income of, let's say, $8,000 would be for a property that's significantly more expensive. A $100,000 property would have an income of only $5,000 because that, again, is that 5% ratio. That we're talking about. Well, Josh, if I want to interject really quick. So now let's take an example that $100,000 property. Now you don't put down if you, the, the cash on cash would be the, the 8% cap rate, but let's say you put down 20% on a $100,000 property, right? Mm -hmm. Put down $20,000, you borrowed eighty, dollars and you're going to pay interest on that. So instead of you getting $8,000 a year net, now it's going to be, let's just make it a bit simple. Let's say it's $7,000, right? So oh, that's be that. it'll be even less than that. It's called $6,000. Six thousand, let's call it. Oh, it'd be maybe three thousand dollars after your debt service. If you're borrowing eighty cents on the dollar, 
you're only going to have two, 3000 bucks left over when it's all said and done. But there's a couple of things that you got to figure in. One part of that payment is paying back the original loan. So that's an asset that's actually built in. The and other thing is that, that you build that back into your calculations. You got to build that back into you, into your actual return. Exactly. The other piece that you have to figure in is that mortgage interest is a tax deduction. So it's protecting more of your income from taxation than you would have if you made a, a straight cash purchase. It doesn't seem like that should be an advantage because I'm spending the money, but in reality, you're spending the money, you're making the money both ways. This way, you actually have a tax deduction to offset your income. Okay, um, simple for my audience, right? Maybe you could do, let's even supply even more. Like we said before. If something's an eight percent cap, that made you, and it's a hundred thousand dollar property, you put down a hundred thousand, you're getting eight thousand dollars net after expenses. If you if you decide to yourself, hey, I don't want to buy that for put a hundred thousand dollars down, I'm going to put twenty thousand dollars down after after deductions, after depreciation, after expense, everything. That's why your return on your twenty percent down really goes to like twelve and thirteen percent. Well, absolutely, and and much even- like guaranteed, more or less. Even even if not, and Philip, this is what guarantee we're seeing. Right. Right. We shouldn't use guarantee, but I mean, it's you know, consider if the tenant pays the rent. Yeah, you all things being equal, it's equal. It, it's it's a, it's a very it's a very consistent. The the risk profile for it is is much more conservative than other investment types. I would say there's there's a greater certainty with this type of investment that 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 number is going to be realistic. But the thing is that that's and that's kind of what's changed at an eight cap apps at an 8% rate of return and I'm borrowing money at 4% all day, every day, I'm making four cents on every dollar I borrow because I'm paying the bank. They're they're lending me the money. I'm spending it. I'm making eight cents on every dollar they give me and I'm giving them back four and I get to keep the other four. That's a win all day long. Right now you're at a place where the rate, the cap rate and the rate you're borrowing money at pretty much cancel each other out. And so the reason why this still makes sense, uh, Phil is, is, is very much the, um, the, differential cash flow that I talked about. The value of real estate is not just in the moment, it's over time. And so when I'm doing my projection for rent increases for the last 30 years, what we've been using in real estate is two and a half to three and a half percent a year for rent increases. Yep. And if I'm looking at appreciation, my appreciation number based upon inflation and everything else has been two and a half to three percent a year. Well, you can't use that in a highly inflationary market. What do you Because using? right now, conservatively, I use seven and a half wow. on the rents. Are you are now, you are you increasing rent by seven and a half percent? No, last year I increased rate by rent by forty percent. Last year, and I'm getting forty percent. My rents went up forty percent across the board. How so you I'm, do that? How am I doing that? Because everybody from up there keeps coming down here and taking up all the places. <laughs> no, the rents have gone nuts. In my 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 projections are always more conservative than what the market is doing. I actually feel like there's a good case to use nine right now. For your for your appreciation number for what your rents will do. Now again, that inflationary cycle is always front loaded. So this this first year and a half that we've had, this first year really that we've had of this, if you look at the seventies, real estate prices spiked sixteen percent at the beginning of coming off the gold standard. Right. right. We've had an experience of about twenty percent right now. Right. So this is the seventies was the last time we really expanded the money supply like crazy. We just did it again, right? And we're kind of seeing the fallout of this, right? And so. Whether or not this is going to be as bad, as long, whatever, the Federal Reserve supposedly has more tools to take and help deal with this. We'll see. All I know is when an inflationary cycle, rents go up with the, at the pace to offset the debt downturn in the value of the money, right? And if money is falling in value, rents will continue to go up. And one of the lagging, one of the lagging um, indexes, not indexes, but one of the lagging items to that is always wages. So inflation is going to be 
you know, what it is now, what, let's say we're going to use CPI and not the producer price index, right? Let's say we're going to stick with that low number of eight and a half, right? We're at eight and a half. Well, they're, they're bragging about wages going up almost 5% last year. That means you took a net three and a half percent loss, yeah. right? Which means if you're renting, you're getting crushed because your rent is go everything's going up. Right, 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 right. And so the reason why there's always this pressure to push people back into real estate is because if you're experiencing high inflation and your rents keep going up, even if the interest rates are very high, you realize, hey, I got to figure out a way to get in a home and get that, that housing expenditure fixed. The sooner I get it fixed, the more I, the sooner I start experiencing appreciation instead of inflation. Because if you own the property, whether it's an investment property or where you live, it doesn't really matter. Every dollar that property appreciates, regardless of how much you borrow, belongs to you. And so that's the reason why there's still this pressure, even with interest rates going up, for people to continue to buy. And I think the more inflation or the longer this inflationary cycle goes on, the more that's going to kind of, that was very much front of mind for the people in the 70s, was you needed to buy a home so that you can get on the right side of this this inflation and, and experience the appreciation. And so, um, that's super interesting. so when you, so when you go back to your, your tenants and telling them I'm going to increase rents by 40%, 9%, what percentage of tenants stick around? Uh, right now we're, we're keeping about 80% of the tenants that we have. Now I, I say 40%. Um, I could, there's, there's a couple of tenants that I didn't do that with, um, that were, you know, and it was 100% a, a, a business decision on my part that, hey, look, I'm taking you rent up 25%, not 40. Right. You can see right. he, here, I could take you up 40, but you're good people, you know, stick. And, you know, they, they first, you know, there's sticker shock for about a week and they call you back and say, when can we have the lease? Because they looked around and there's nothing they can get that's anywhere close to as nice as what you have. And again, this idea of, you know, folks that were living in high rise places, now they got to be looking at low rise places because, they can't afford high rise anymore. If they find someplace nice, they'll jump all over. I mean, most of my stuff staying on the market as far as rentals a week, maybe it's on the market a week. Uh, it's, it's an insane market. That's phenomenal. Let's talk about prices, right? So prices up last year, 20% year over year, 25% in other places of the country. Wages up 5%, inflation, CPI, measured by CPI up 8.5%, right? So how is real estate prices going to stay at the level that it's staying at or even appreciate with interest rates going up, wages not keeping up to it, et cetera? Don't we need a, don't we need a housing collapse or real estate collapse? And are we in the midst of that? Well, again, I look for historical, um, I look to history always as my, my guide for this kind of thing. When I did my research, because I just wrote a class on inflation, that's probably why all this stuff is coming out right now. Um, I looked at the 1970s to see when the real estate market tanked. I, I, I wanted to know, wh when did the prices go down? And I got all the way to 1982, and I'm looking at interest rates of 18 and 21%. Yes. And real estate prices still went up 1% nationwide. And I'm sitting here saying, you know, when the first year that real estate prices went down, because, you know, you always got that, that person, the one negative guy that's standing there. I'm going to wait for the bubble to burst, damn it. It's going to burst. Not till the early 1990s, real estate prices one year fell 0.3%. But otherwise, they actually trended up. Because here's the thing, Philip, and this is, this is really the wild card in the whole thing. It's not the real estate that's changing. It's the money we're using to buy the real estate with that's changed. 
it's become less valuable, right? And so the, the analogy I like to use is this. Let's say I was going to go buy a car. It's a $40,000 car. But instead of using cash to buy it, I was going to buy use shares of GE, let's say. And let's say GE shares are trading at $40 a share, all right? And so I need 1,000 shares of GE stock to buy the car. Nice and easy. No big deal. Well, let's say GE stock falls to $20 a share. Well, now I need twice as many shares to buy the same car. The car hasn't changed. The stock has changed. We act like that's not the case with the dollar because for the last 40 years, 30 plus years, we've enjoyed this very stable, low inflation. Um, but if you look at the aggregate inflation from 1970 to 1979, it was 103.4%. Oh, yeah, it was ridiculous. So, you know, what's interesting about everything you said in terms of the price of real estate never going down, the bet that Wall Street was making in 2008 and building up their portfolios with all those mortgage-backed securities was they- That same bet. Thought- they never thought real estate would collapse because they never did. Correct. And it, and it did. And so the question always is, and it's the number one question I get asked, Philip, 100% of the time is, is this 2008 all over again? So we have to look at 2008. And I mean, the no, cool thing is, it's not that crazy because there's only two things that make a market, supply and demand. Right. Well, it's a supply side issue or a demand side issue. It was a supply side issue. I mean, it was a demand side issue. The demand that we had was an artificial demand created by lending criteria that the banks knew was not a good lending criteria. They had stayed away from it for years, but you know how it is. It's same thing on Wall Street, right? The young bucks come in and they know how it's going to get done and they start making money. Well, the thing is the house of cards eventually came down and it created a situation where the banks didn't just go back to the lending criteria they had 10, 12 years ago that was okay. They went draconian. They shut off all the cash to everybody. So that went from, you know, this the, the 5 billion people qualified for a loan down to like six guys qualified for a loan. They're all looking at each other like, are you going to buy a property? Hell no, I'm not touching anything. So they all took their ball and went home. The cash buyers weren't going to buy anything. So you had a period there where you had an inventory that was well-sized to the demand that you had prior to them shutting off the lo- the money. And now when they shut off the money, that was an incredible oversupply. Plus the loans themselves exacerbated the issue because so many of those loans were low and no equity position loans for the people that were actually in homes. So those folks now said, hey, look, I'm stepping away. These prices are coming down. I'm stepping away. When they stepped away, it created even more supply. And whenever there's an oversupply situation, the same thing has to happen, which is prices have to come down to attract buyers. And eventually it did. But it took years for that to work its way out. So the question is, are the banks making those kind of loans? Because that is the only thing that we've ever seen that could do this. And the reality of it is they're not. They're only approving about 35% of first-time mortgage applicants today, as opposed to 98% in 2007. It's one of the the key metrics that you have to keep your finger on the pulse of, is that. I totally agree. The the other thing I think is really interesting to think about, right? Like you said, 1980 and 1981, the price of real estate prices still went up 1% after I think the 10 year was at 14%, 10 year treasury rate, right? But, but what happened in 1980 was the average age of the baby boomer was approximately 30 years old. And that's the time when most are starting their families, making babies and buying homes. So you had that demand coming in, which is very similar to what we have going on today. Sure. The average millennial is turning 30 years old. So you have demand coming in. That's why they're saying there's a $4 million short, $4 million uh, unit shortage in homes today, which I'm not sure if I'm really buying that to be honest, but, but, um, so, so that's, that's kind of, you know, where we are today. And, and I guess the, the part that gives us a little bit of confidence is what you just said before is that the banks are not in, in the shape that they were in back in 2007, 2008, you know, laws have changed since then, obviously. Right. 
And, and the consumer does seem to be stronger than they were before. However, consumers are taking on more debt in 2022 than it did in 2021. So they're starting, that stimulus that they had, that's starting to run out. And, and you're seeing that rise now in the credit card debt situation. So listen, I, I, in my view, when it comes to the stock market, when it comes to real estate, it's about value. And right now, if you're buying something at 4 or 5% cap, that's not of good value. Something has to give. So are we going to see the crash in 08? I don't think we see the crash in 08. But I do think you see things stabilize. But in, you know, when you can raise rents by 8 9% and get away with it, right? which, which, they, which they can, and you can, then that's why it's a valuable asset, right? So well, absolutely. If if the if the projection for future cash flows are like I'm buying it right now and I'm not making really any money on it right now, but the projection for future cash flows is what it is. And that's what I was saying to you before. I've had to change the numbers that I use at least for the next two or three years. I need to project seven or eight percent increases in rent. Absolutely. If, if, if inflation is going to just take and, and flatline some, the Fed's going to take and do what they're going to do. All, all, all right, we'll see. We'll see how much pressure they can put on the economy without the economy collapsing. Workforce participation is still below what it was prior to COVID, right? We're still, we still don't have as many people working as we did prior to COVID. GDP fell for the first quarter this past quarter. Um, this economy is not as strong as they make it out to be by looking at the unemployment numbers. It's not the whole picture. That's right. Um, That's right. And if you look even at the GDP of this country, it is inflation adjusted below what it was in 2019. Yet we have a stock market that's priced. Prices are significantly higher there. There's a lot of things that are taking and kind of giving us this really euphoric feeling about how the economy actually is. But it's not that strong. So I don't know how, how hard the Fed is going to be able to push by putting a strain on the economy that raising interest rates does without causing a situation that puts us into an actual recession. We're going into a recession. I, I it's, it's a foregone conclusion, so I agree with you. It's so ridiculous. But um, I just want you to explain to the audience, you just said you have to increase your rents by 7.5%, right? Because if you don't, why is that a problem? Because your money isn't buying as much. I used to, I used to kid. I used to tell people, look, you know, five years ago I used to go for a haircut. It was ten dollars. Now it's twelve dollars. I got less hair. They're cutting less. I should have to pay less, right? But no, I got to pay twelve dollars for the same stupid haircut. My my favorite analogy is this: When I was a kid, my very first job for my father was loading cans of Coke in the vending machine, and I clearly remember thirty years ago that can of Coke cost fifty cents. I go to the same machine today. It's a buck and a half. Has the Coke changed? No. Has the, the vending machine changed? No. The can changed? Nothing has changed. The only thing that changed is the money that I went to buy the can of Coke with. So I can be like other people. And I could I could do what I'm, I used to be told. You get told when you're young, you got to save your money, be smart, save your money. So maybe I didn't buy the can of Coke and I put my money, my 50 cents in a savings account. I compound, I actually got the financial calculator out, the HP 10B2 and banged it out, Philip. Real numbers, real, real numbers. I'd have a grand total of 56 cents if I had followed that advice today. If I had my money in a savings account for the last 30 years, I'd have 56 cents today based on bank rates. What if I bought the can of Coke though? Could I load that can of Coke today and sell it for a buck and a half? Yeah. I absolutely could. So do I need to be going to Sam's or Costco's or BJ Wholesale or someplace and loading extra any extra money I have up in cases of Coke in the trunk of my car? No, you got to get into assets that are going to be a hedge against this inflation. Because, folks, I got to tell you, if you didn't make somewhere between eight and a half and twelve percent last year, you lost money. The producer price index is eleven point two the last month, right? That means the cost to make the stuff went up almost twelve stinking percent. You got about eighty-eight cents of buying power on every dollar. Yep, and it's probably even more than that in some in some industries. 
I, I would agree with that. And so, you know, you, you got your dollar, you put a dollar on your mattress last year, you pulled 88 cents out this year. So you got to figure out what you're going to do with that buck to make sure that it still buys a buck's worth of stuff. Because in 1970, that dollar, by 1979, it bought less than 50 cents worth of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Josh, last question for you. So you're a real estate guy. Yes, sir. What is your view of stocks? Not like your view of stocks, to, in, just in general. Um, I, I love stocks in general. I, I know that I don't know it well enough to be the kind of player that I am in real estate. Um, it's kind of like crypto. I, I do stuff in crypto as well. But when I when I buy stocks or I buy crypto, I dollar cost average. I know I'm not bright enough to, you know, I, if I like a company and I think it makes sense and I think the numbers make sense, I'm in. Do I think that prices are, are high right now? I, I kind of think they are. Um, I think we're kind of seeing that revaluation right now in the last couple of, uh, of right. like this month. Um, but, you know, all in all, I, I think that uh, it's, we've, we've been blessed with a very, very interesting market to watch. And, um, you know, one of the things that also is the other piece of this is how are we reflecting the, the value of, the, of, the, of the, the companies in dollars? Well, those dollars are now inflated dollars. So, of course, theoretically, the prices of all those companies have to go up because we're measuring them inflated dollars. Right. And so that's the other piece of this, that, that idea. And again, it's just so foreign. Most of us haven't seen it in 40, almost 40 years so of adjusting for inflation. You're right. So, I mean, naturally, revenues for companies will be higher than last year, just purely based on if they raised prices. And they sold the same amount of units, they, you know, their revenue is going to be up 10, 10, 15%. So exactly. you have to factor that in. If you get that's why you got to look at that's really where you have to look at, you know, real versus nominal, you know, which is important. Absolutely. I agree with that. And that's exactly what I'm saying. I, 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 I you know, it's your, it's your, it's your, your area, Philip. And, and I, I appreciate that. I, I know you'll know it much better than me, but uh, to me, I think that there's value, you know, you can find value in any any of these places, you just have to know what to look for. And that's you definitely can. You definitely can. I agree with you a thousand percent. And that's what you know Warren Buffett is all about. And that's you know, it's sometimes you just got to keep it simple, stupid, you know, and just look for value. And like all these people that were investing in these meme stocks and these overhyped stocks and trading at stupid valuations got completely crushed. We knew it was gonna happen and and it happened again, and it just happens again and again and again. Those that look for value. And a patient of those that survive and do the best over time. Period. End of story. Patience and discipline, man. That's it's it. Man. That's what it's all about. You know, two hardest things. That. That's it. And people just got to really think about that and really follow that discipline because it's really important. Josh, you were awesome. It was great. I could talk to you for another hour, literally. <laughs> um, it, it was really fun. It really was. I appreciate your time, your your expertise, your advice, and feedback to all of us. Uh, I thought you were great. Thank you, Philip. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. This was this was great. It was really fun talking to you too. I always always appreciate talking to anybody that knows their stuff and their in their business, man. Yeah, listen, I, I look forward to keeping in touch. Let's definitely do that. You'll be my you'll be, absolutely. My, you'll be my boots in the ground in Florida over there. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And right. if there's if there's anything anybody needs, you can find me aceclosure.com. That's where yeah. uh, all my stuff is at. And uh, yeah, teach real estate stuff all over the country. Yeah, this is great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, listen when I'm out there putting stuff on social. I'll make sure they know who you are for sure. Thanks, Philip. I appreciate that. All right, man. Josh, be well. Take care of yourself. You too. Take care, sir. Bye-bye now.